chapter 41. We're just going to be looking at the, kind of the first half of the chapter. I'm going to read through uh, verse 38. And uh, these are the words of God. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed uh, in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears uh, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief ba uh, baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When, he, uh, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, it came about. I was rest restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who uh, can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ones, uh, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven good uh, cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after, the, uh, after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine uh, that will follow, for it will be very severe. 
And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over uh, the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh in uh, food for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we can only know you if you teach us, if you speak to us. And we can only understand your words uh, if your Spirit comes and teaches, uh, instructs our hearts, that your word may be applied to our lives and into our minds, that we would respond to your word with faith and with obedience. We ask that now... um, you would teach us. And uh, we love uh, to sit before you and to learn from you. Our souls long to hear from you. So please uh, be our guide now as we uh, devote ourselves to your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Um, so the, uh, the, the title of the sermon this morning is Revelation, which... Uh, I know is the, la- the last book of the Bible is called Revelation. That's not what I'm referring to, the last book of the Bible um, by Revelation. What I mean by Revelation is that the Bible tells us that, um, uh, that Revelation is the way that we come to know God. The, the, the way that we get in touch with God is not like God is some uh, force or energy up in the sky that we somehow learn disciplines and find some way to tap into but instead that God is personal. God is like a person, and like other people that we know and that we have relationships with, he's loving, he's creative, uh, he has opinions about things, uh, he's passionate, he's kind, he's forgiving, he, uh, he's a judge, he gets angry, he's personal. And just like uh, we, the only way we can get to know other people is if they reveal themselves to us, the only way we can get to know God is if he reveals himself to us through a revelation. So let me, you know... Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So, you know, when Shannon and I uh, were dating, we, uh, we started dating three days before she left for college. She was going to go to Wazoo in, in uh, Pullman, and I was going to come to Western. And it was our freshman year. We'd just fallen in love, and we're six hours apart from each other. And, of course, one of the big questions that was stirring in me is, okay, is this, is this going to work out? Wow, we got four years ahead of each other. We're six hours away. I'm sure she's going to meet some schmo out at out in Pullman, who is going to be cooler than I am. And so this is not looking good for me. And so over the next few weeks, you know, I'm, uh, we'll be sending emails and having phone calls, and I'm trying to um, uh, speculate what is she thinking, what is she feeling, you know, what's happening. And it's all, you know, kind of use my intuition to get in touch with who is she, what's happening in her heart, right? But then, you know, a few weeks in, she opened her heart to me, you know, and she said, I, I want to make this work. I, I, I believe, I 
believe in us, right? And uh, <laughs> she believed in us. And, um, and, and it was the only way that I can really know who she is, what she's thinking, is if she tells me. And actually, you know, a lot of my speculating, you know, if you read through the, you know, the words in the email, what did that word mean? What did this word, what's behind that? You know, that usually doesn't work very well, right? The thing that really works is when she clearly speaks, this is who I am. And, uh, and of course, when she did that, that was a great gift to me, right? When she actually said, uh, this, this is who I am, it was, it was, uh, she was opening herself, it was a gift. And, and I didn't have to do the work. It was, she was giving me a gift. And it turns out the way that we get to know God is, a similar, is in a similar pattern, that we don't speculate, use our intuition to try to find out who God is. He's not this, uh, this mystery that we can, of our own effort, try to find out who he is, but he reveals himself to us. And this is what happens in this passage with Pharaoh. Um, you, see that, uh, you see that even there in verse 25. It uses that language. Uh, and Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So uh, Pharaoh, here's this guy. Um, not only was he not thinking about God, he's an Egyptian. He doesn't even know who God is. Actually, he thinks he's God. And um, so he's not exploring what is God going to do, what does God think. And all of a sudden, God comes and reveals himself to him through a dream and speaks to him. And um, what theologians have tr- traditionally said is that God has revealed himself to us primarily in two ways. Through two books. The one book is the book of the creation, that uh, the heavens declare to us the glory of God, and he's revealed himself to us through, uh, that's called general revelation, and through special revelation, through the Bible. The way that we come to know God is through the ways that he has revealed himself and spoken to us. So what I want to do this morning is we just look at some of the key verses in this passage. I want to talk a little bit about revelation and what we learn about God through his revelation of himself. And we're going to look at four things. And the first is this, that through revelation, we learn about God. We learn about God himself. This is how we get to know God, is through revelation. Now, um, one of the reasons why this is important, you might think this is kind of a theological topic, uh, revelation, but it's important in a place like Bellingham, because for most people in Bellingham, that, that is how they view God. God is an energy, you know, maybe in the universe, uh, maybe in the sky, maybe God is an energy inside of me, and, um, and being a spiritual person means that I learn certain disciplines, whether it's, you know, meditating, yoga, visualizations, different ways that I train myself to tap into that energy. And if I can tap into that energy, it will bring kind of positivity uh, into my life. And you, so, so the God is kind of like a, this force. It's like gravity or something. And if I can kind of align myself with the force, things will go well with me. And so that the way that I get to know God is really through my own effort, right? It's through, through sticking to these disciplines, um, dis- through techniques, we learn certain techniques. Now, it's actually not just, that's not just in Bellingham and kind of the, the spiritual culture of Bellingham, but if you go up on the campus up to Western, and, you know, most conversations about God are going to be happening in, in a philosophical, you know, maybe a philosophy class where you're debating whether, whether does God exists. Do we really know, uh, what can we know about God? What can we say about God? But again, we're knowing about God through a technique. Right? We're using our, our reason, our logic, our speculation, our intuition to make a decision about what do we believe about God. And in both the spirituality in Bellingham and the philosophy of, of a college campus, 
The starting point is me. We start with me, and then I'm going to use my own effort, and I'm going to use certain techniques to arrive at a conclusion about who God is. And uh, this actually, um, I, and let me just say one thing about that. And in that process, where I use these techniques to arrive at a conclusion about God, guess who remains in control of that process all along? I do. I'm determining who God is. I, and, and it's based on my effort and my control. And this is actually uh, essentially the same kind of spirituality that, that was in Egypt in Joseph's day and Pharaoh's day. And um, because, you know, this passage begins, Pharaoh has a dream. And in Genesis so far, you know, dreams in Genesis, there are certain, the only dreams that Genesis talks about are dreams that come from God, right? So Abraham has dreams, and Jacob has dreams, and Joseph has dreams, and uh, the cupbearer and, uh, and the baker a couple chapters back had a dream. And um, all of these were things that, uh, uh, dreams that came from God. And then it says this in verse 8. So, so uh, Pharaoh has a dream, and in verse 8 it says, So in the morning, after he's had this dream, his spirit was troubled. And actually the, the great uh, Hebraist uh, Robert Alter um, says that literally this means that he woke up and his heart was pounding. Pharaoh had this, uh, this dream, and he woke up and he is filled with anxiety. Um, his life, anxiety has taken hold of him. His heart is pounding inside of him. And he says, I don't know what is going on. And it says that, and he sent and he called for all the magi magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now what he's doing, he's going to all these uh, magicians. And what we know about, uh, you know, you know, ancient Egypt is they had a vast literature on how to interpret interpret, decipher dreams. So they have all these books and they have all these techniques to say, listen, we know how to get in touch with what God's, we know God's going to do, what the, the, you know, the, the gods are going to do, the supernatural powers, we know how to tap into those. And yet, um, Pharaoh says that all their interpretations are wrong. How do you know they were wrong? <laughs> how do you know they were, you know, it's like, well, that sounds pretty good. You know, one guy comes up, yeah, you're going to have seven daughters and they're all going to die. That's, that's what your dream means. I don't think that's it. Uh, so how did he know that these were the wrong dreams? He didn't, know what the he didn't know what the right interpretation was. He could tell that these dreams did not satisfy him. The techniques didn't work. And this is true for us as well, is that every technique, every effort of our own to attain to God, they don't get us there. They leave us deeply unsatisfied. And Pharaoh found that. He had all these wise men, all these magicians who saying, listen, we have, look at all these books we have on dreams and deciphering dreams. And he said, you know what? They're just not hitting. They don't ring true to me. And uh, what I love about this passage, you know, and um, what I love about this passage is Joseph, Joseph's been in slavery and in prison for 12 years now. And, uh, and Pharaoh has these crazy dreams. You know, in the dream... Uh, there's these cows. So first, these cows come out of the river, and there's these big, um, fat, healthy cows that are walking around eating the grass. And then these gaunt, skeleton cows come up and start eating the other cows. You know, I, imagine having a dream like that. And you, you're in your dream, and it's just cannibal cows eating each other. 
and you say, what is wrong with me? What's, uh, why, do, why do I come up with these kinds of thoughts? And it's this kind of nightmare, and he's freaked out. His heart's pounding in him, and so the cupbearer, who's like his right-hand man, says, hey, listen, I know a guy who helped me with some of my dreams. Let's go, uh, let's go pull him out of the, the prison, and it says in, in verse 14, then Pharaoh uh, sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And so um, Joseph, you know, he's got this big beard with, you know, bugs living in it, and his teeth are all crooked, and his hair's all, he's like, I'll interpret your cow dream. And uh, <laughs> he's coming out, and they're like, we need to clean you up a bit before shower, shave, okay, some new clothes. But even though they clean him up, He's still got a ring of, of the craziness in him. And I love how the first words that come out of his mouth. Look, he comes out of the pit. He's been in there for like seven years or something. And it says in verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So he's basically saying, I hear you're better than the magicians. You've got a technique to, to get in touch with the dream. And listen to the first words out of Joseph's mouth kind of crazy-eyed. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. There's just one word in Pharaoh. It's just like a yell. You know, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And what he says is no man can explain God. No man can find some technique where I'm going I'm to find out who God is and I'm going I'm to use my, I'm going to go on a journey to go find God. You can't do it. He says, God has to come to you and reveal himself to you, just like Shannon. She, she had to open her heart to me, and it was up to her. It wasn't up to me. I couldn't make her do it. I had to wait until she decided to do that. And yet when he does it, it's a gift. And um, what this means is that getting to know God is a process that is not in our control. We don't get to determine the process he does. And he'll tell us the things about himself that he wants to. And there are things that he's told us about himself, and that's the only way we can get to know him. And um, the essence of Christianity, the essence of our faith, is not that we attain to who God is and of our own effort find out who God is, but the essence of Christianity is that he comes to us. He's a personal God, a loving, kind, creative, judging, powerful God who comes and wants to make himself known to us. And so the starting point of knowing God is not me. It's not my strength, it's not my effort, it's not my intuition, it's not my morals, it's none of that. It's him. He comes to us, and actually uh, Proverbs 1 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You don't know anything about God until uh, he has made himself known to you and you've begun to fear him, and then you can start knowing things. And so what that says is that revelation is not about our quest to find God. It's about God's quest to reveal himself to us. Okay? So, first, um, in Revel through Revelation, we learn, that's how we learn about God. But what do we learn? What do we learn about him? This is the second thing, is that through Revelation, we learn about his goodness. We learn about God's goodness through his revelation. When he does make himself known something about him, we find out, first of all, that he's good. And you might have caught that there in verse 16 where uh, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And uh, actually that literally says uh, uh, God will answer the shalom of Pharaoh. 
the shalom of Pharaoh. And shalom is, is a Hebrew word for, for peace. And it's actually bigger than our word for peace. Shalom is, is kind of the Hebrew word for wholeness in life. God's creation, work, our lives functioning the way they were meant to work. And he says, God is, is going to speak to you shalom. He wants to bring shalom and wholeness and peace into your life. He has a good, kind answer. And so that the God who's revealing himself to us is not a heart, you know, a wicked God, not a harsh God, not a vindictive God, not an angry, frustrated God. It is a kind God. He is a kind God. And the reason this is important um, to realize that the first thing that God reveals to us in his word is his goodness is because for many of us, you know, in our culture, when we say, oh, God reveals himself uh, to us through a book, you know, uh, if you want to know about God, he's told you who he is, which is very uncomfortable for many people. They say, whoa, listen, I'm not in, I don't get to be in control of the discovery of God. You know, in science, we... Um, Discovering the world, that is a process that we feel very in control of. You know, I have the Microsoft or microscope. Um, the little amoeba is in the dish. I'm in control. I'm governing things. We're doing an experiment. I'm in control of this experiment. I'm in control of the knowledge. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide what's right and what's wrong. And then all of a sudden, God gives us a book, and he says, no, you're not. I'm, I'm God. And I'm going to reveal myself, and this is, what's, this is what's true and what's false. This is what's right and what's wrong. This is what's good and uh, what's beautiful and what's ugly. And we're going to have to submit to his revelation. For many people, that's, uh, that's a scary thought. What's that book going to say to me if I open myself up to it? And the first thing that it tells us is that the God who's revealing himself in that word is a good God. He is kind. He's opening himself up, and he's a, he's a God who's kind. And let me just say, um, in our church, this is a, an important part of the vision of our church. Because um, if you go way back to the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where sin and brokenness came into the world, and you look at the fall of humanity when the serpent is in the garden and is talking to, to, to Eve, and you look at what the lie is. What is the thing that brought wickedness into the world? The lie was this. God, you know what he said to Eve? He said, listen, I know God said don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reason he said that is because he wants to keep you down. He knows that if you eat of that, you'll become like him. You'll become smart. You'll become wise. And he wants to keep you in your place. And what he's essentially saying is God is selfish and God cannot be trusted. He is not good. And so the reason that we become defensive um, we become harsh towards other people, we become angry. The reason we lie to other people, the reason we manipulate other people, the reason we steal, all the things that are wrong with human relationships with each other come from this fundamental belief, I don't believe that God is good. And God cannot be trusted, so I need to take control of my own life, and I need to guard my own life, and I need to protect myself. So what that means for our church, so if I say, wow, i got a group of people here that I'm going to talk to for... 40 minutes every week. What, what's the main message if, that's going to transform your life? The main message is that God is not selfish. He's not vindictive. He's good. He is kind. All the sins you'll ever do in your life, he's paid for them in Jesus. He'll forgive all of them. And he won't hang them over your head. He's not frustrated with you. He's kind. He wants you to be his children and he loves you. And that the first part of the revelation is his goodness. And when we begin to rest in his goodness, our heart softens and we want to love other people. And I don't need to be defensive because God protects me and I trust him. And so when I begin to rest in his goodness, that's what changes, changes me.
And so the first thing that God reveals to us in his word and in his creation is his goodness. Okay? But there's more that he teaches us, not just about his goodness, but we also learn about his power. We learn about his goodness and we learn about his power. Now you notice this three times in this text. Joseph is talking to Pharaoh, verse 25, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God is going to act. He's going to do something, and he's powerful, um, and, and he's warning you. Uh, verse 28, again, uh, It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then again in verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh had these two dreams that kind of said the same thing. The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. And the message here is um, that God is absolutely in control of everything. So God's giving this dream to Pharaoh to say, listen, you're going to have seven years of abundance and then you're going to have seven years of famine. So the crops, the rain, uh, the soil, all of that, God is in control of all of it. And he is going to do something with it. He's going to give you seven years of, of abundance, seven years of famine. And um, one of the reasons this is important is because, you know, in the ancient world, you had all these little kingdoms scattered around the ancient Near East. And they all had these local deities. Their God, you know, they had a little... A little uh, a little house where they'd make a statue and they'd say, this is our God. And when we go battle other people, he fights their God for us. And um, maybe he's, you know, maybe he's the river deity or maybe he's the sun God or maybe he's the corn king, the fer fertility God. And we trust in him, but they're these local tribal deities. And one of the things that the Bible says over and over again is that the God of the Bible is not a local deity. He's not Israel's just God, their personal little God that they have a statue of in their house. He is the creator of everything. He is the king over everything. And so the sun god uh, is, if there was a sun god, he would be under God's power. He would be under God's authority. The river god, the fertility god, all of it is under God's authority and God's power, his sovereign power. And what that means, what that teaches us is when God reveals to us his power over all creation, it radically changes how we see the world. It radically changes how that we see the world. Because for many people, when they think of, oh, there's a God who made the world, it means that God was kind of this clockmaker. And he made a clock, and the, the universe is like a clock, and he set it running, and then he let go of it. And now it's running, and, you know, we have our laws of nature, and that's the clock kind of running its course. That's not the biblical view of God. The biblical view of God is that everything that is happening in the world is under his power and his control. And so that everything that, and it changes how I see everything. I see, you know, I, had, I have my breakfast, my puffins this morning. It's like, wow, my puffins. God made the puffins and, they, and the peanut butter, this peanut butter puffins. And uh, that's, that's from God. And, and when we say grace over our meal, it's not just this trite little thing of, oh, we're thanking God for the stir-fry. No. God really gave me that stir-fry. And, um, and my job, he, he put me in that job. Like, this is why I'm here. It's because God's in control. He's holding everything together. That's why I'm in this job. And this person that I'm, I'm working with, or this person, you know, my brother or my sister or, or my neighbors or, or the people that I'm here at church with or the fact that I'm in Bellingham, all these things God is in control of. And, and the green that's coming off those trees, you can, you know, and the blue that's coming from the sky, I can see it. You can turn around and look at it if you want. Uh, 
it, all of those beautiful um, beams of light, you know, the frequencies, I don't know how it works, that hit my eyeball. All of that is God giving, giving. He's doing, he's working, he's holding together. He has his servants. And all of a sudden, this is not some clock that God set and let go of. Everything that's happening is under his power and control. And that's what he's saying to Pharaoh, is what's about to happen is under God's, God's uh, power and God's control. And, um, and it turns out that the good God that's revealed to us is also a profoundly powerful God. He, there's nothing that is out of his control. Now, one of the obvious uh, questions of that is like, wow, okay, God's in control of everything that's happening. You know, does that make us robots, right? That we're, he's played the script, he tells us what to do, and we just do it. We don't have any free will, any decision-making, any responsibility in this project. It's just God in control of everything. Are we just robots? Well, you know, the scriptures are so, so nuanced, so complete in how they teach to us. Because uh, what happens in this passage is that Pharaoh's being told, listen, God's already decided what's going to happen. He's in complete control of all your crops, and he's going to give you seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. That's the plan. And yet, what is Pharaoh supposed to do? He is supposed to respond. This isn't just information. He's supposed to do something with it. He's supposed to hear that, you know, God's given him his revelation, and now he's supposed to be obedient and trust God. And so there is a response. He does have a place in it. And this is the third thing that Revelation shows us, not just, not just his goodness and his power, but we also learn of his authority. God's authority, his right to direct and to judge our life. And that we do have responsibility. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that in a place like Bellingham, a lot of times when we are on a journey to find God or think of spiritual questions, you know, this happens in a philosophy class up at Western. And not, sorry, college students, if I, this is not to put you down at all. But, you know, I, this was me. You know, when you're, in a, when you're in a college class, in a philosophy class, the idea is like, you know, I'm 19. And I'm going to decide whether this God of the Bible or this God, whether he meets my standard of uh, my 19-year-old little human in Bellingham in this vast universe, I'm going to decide that he made, I'm going to decide whether he lives up to my standard because I am the, the supreme moral authority. And, um, and what happens is, um, what's happened, and, and uh, C.S. Lewis um, wrote an essay uh, called God in the Dock, and uh, where he talks about this, this change that has happened in the modern world. Because it's really an amazing thing for us to decide whether God meets my standard. Whether I'll even believe in him, whether he's good enough for me to accept him. And what C.S. Lewis says is that the, in the ancient world, man always approached God or the gods as an accused person approaches his judge. But in the modern world, we have reversed it. And we have said... I am the judge. I am the authority. I am the one who has logic and knowledge and intuition. And I'm sure that if there's a God, I could figure him out. And uh, I'm going to make a decision whether I will accept him or not. It's not a question of whether God will accept me. It's a question of whether I will accept him. And um, there's this incredible reversal. And sometimes we say, you know, I'll be generous. If God is good, if he can explain why there's sickness and war and poverty, I'll... I'll let him pass if he comes up with a good answer. I'm a nice judge. But the important thing is that I am the judge and God is the one that is the accused. He is the one that we are passing a verdict on. 
And what revelation will always do, it will always reverse that for us and remind us, no, I'm the creature. He's the creator, I'm the creature. He's the king, I'm the subject. I'm the one who has to give an account to him. And in that sense, revelation always demands of us a response. We don't just get information. We don't just read the Bible and say, I'm going to learn theology, and I'm going to, oh, wow, interesting things. It always demands a response from us. It makes a claim on our life. And you see this here uh, with Pharaoh. Look, look at verse 32. And the, and, uh, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during uh, the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of, of Pharaoh, Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. So basically, Joseph says, Look, listen, God's in complete control. He has power, but you have a responsibility. <laughs> You need to do something. You need to appoint a wise man and you need to store up grain and you need to serve the nations and serve your people and be a good king and provide food for them. You need to act. And um, what Joseph is saying is that when we are faced with God's power and his goodness, we are faced with this question, how will I respond to the good and powerful God? Will I submit to him? Will I trust him? Will I obey him? Will I listen to his word? Which is also to say, are you willing to be out of control? Am I willing to be out of control in the process of my spiritual life? And to say that God, God is the, the one in control and he will reveal himself to me, his goodness, his power, and his purposes. And to acknowledge that I am not God, which is actually an important thing for Pharaoh. Because <laughs> he thought he was God. And in our culture, we're told over and over again that we are God. and We are our own gods. We are autonomous and sovereign over our own lives. And, um, and uh, let me just, let me read this. This is, a, this is a favorite. If you turn to page three in your bulletin, it's kind of a long quote. But I love this quote, so I've got to read it to you. And uh, I debated whether to skip it, but, but it's good, so let's, let's read it. This is Leslie Newbigin. Leslie Newbigin was a, uh, uh, a missionary for 50 years in India. And when he came back to the West from India, he was an Anglican, um, he was observing that the West had uh, become a post-Christian culture. So he wrote a lot about what does it be, mean to be in a, a missionary in a, in a culture like ours that is now post-Christian. Like, the gospel has come here, we've been Christians, you know, for a long time, and now we've rejected the gospel and we're on the, the kind of tail end of Christianity. How do we as Christians interact with, with a culture like that? And, um, and this is in his book, a uh, really good book on discipleship called Proper Confidence. This is what he says. See if you can follow along with me. There is a radical break between these two kinds of knowing. The knowing often associated with the natural sciences and the knowing involved in personal relations. Right? So the difference between Shannon and I and me and, and the amoeba and the microscope. Okay? What's the difference between those two kinds of knowing? We experience this radical break, for example, when someone about whom we have been ta uh, talking unexpectedly comes into the room. We can discuss an absent person in a manner that leaves us in full control of the discussion. 
But if the person comes into the room, we must either break off the discussion or change into a different mode of talking. This is a proper analogy of the break involved in the move from the classical, that's kind of the scientific, to the Christian way of understanding the world. If, so to say, the idea of the good has actually entered the room and spoken, we have to stop our former discussion and listen. Instead of asking all the questions, we must answer the questions put by the other. You know, what's happening here is that uh, Pharaoh... Pharaoh got a dream from God. God's revealing himself to him. And, and Joseph comes as this prophet who says, I'm going to explain the dream to you. God will tell, 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 you, uh, tell me what the dream is about. And this is the beginning of a long line throughout the Old Testament of God speaking through his prophets. But then, Hebrews tells us that at the end of that long line of prophets where God is revealing himself to, through prophets, what Newbigin talks about, the idea of the good, God himself, actually walked into the room. God has walked into the room in Jesus. And God has supremely shown who he is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that when we explore God, our, our exploration of, of, of de- deciding who God is is not a question where we say, you know, I'm going to do some philosophy, I'm going I'm to take the arguments and see uh, which argument is most convincing. We are confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. And we look at Jesus Christ and we say, this is, who God, this is who God is. Is he good? We look at him caring for the poor. We look at him welcoming the, uh, the outcasts. And we see the very character of God and we say, is that someone I trust? And we look at Jesus who's coming, who rose from the dead, who conquered death and who healed people and showed his lordship over creation. And we see that he's powerful. And we look at Jesus and he comes and he demands of each one of us not to just think about him as a philosopher, but to respond to his call, will you follow me? Will you trust me? Will you obey me? And you cannot be in control of the process. He alone will. And so this is the, uh, the question that God's revelation always confronts us with, is will we trust the God of the Bible? Will we trust Jesus Christ? And therefore, will we obey him? And uh, this is the question for us as a church as we study God's word and commit ourselves to his revelation. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you've not left us wandering, blind, searching, clueless about who you are, but you have revealed yourself to us in your word, in your creation, and with your spirit testifying in our hearts. We pray that you would give us faith uh, to trust you and uh, to respond to your revelation with faith and trust, that we would look at Jesus, our Savior, the last and final prophet, the very Son of God, and that we would follow him. And I pray for those who are here who uh, have maybe never responded to that call where Jesus says, come to me and follow me and who have left their sins, repented of their sins, and trusted in his saving grace, I pray that your spirit would now give them faith uh, to respond with trust and obedience. We thank you for this word in Jesus' name.